0: Section 1 of The Seen Bone, or The Adventures of Dr Thorndyke, by R. Austin Freeman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Case of Oscar Brodsky. Part 1. The Mechanism of Crime. A surprising amount of nonsense has been talked about conscience. On the one hand, remorse or the again-bite, as certain scholars of the ultra Teutonic leanings would prefer to call it. On the other hand, an easy conscience. These have been accepted as the determining factors of happiness, or the reverse. Of course, there is an element of truth in the very easy-conscious view, but it begs the whole question. A particularly hardy conscience may be quite easy under the most unfavourable conditions conditions in which the more feeble conscience might be severely afflicted with the againbite, and then it seems to be the fact that some fortunate persons have no conscience at all, a negative gift that raises them above the mental vicissitudes of the common herd of humanity. Now, Silas, Hitler was a case in point. No one, looking into his cheerful round face, beaming with benevolence and wreathed in perpetual smiles, would have imagined him to be a criminal. Least of all, his worthy high-church housekeeper who was a witness to his unvarying amiability, who constantly heard him caroling light-heartedly about the house and noted his appreciative zest at mealtimes. Yet it is a fact that Silas earned his modest, though comfortable, income by the gentle art of burglary, a precarious trade and risky withal, yet not so very hazardous if pursued with judgment and moderation. And Silas was eminently a man of judgment, He worked invariably alone. He kept his own counsel. No confederate had he to turn King's evidence at a pinch. No one he knew would bounce off in a fit of temper to Scotland Yard, nor was he greedy and thriftless, as most criminals are. His scoops were few and far between, carefully planned, secretly executed, and the proceeds judiciously invested in weekly property. In early life, Silas had been connected with the diamond industry and he still did a little rather irregular dealing. In the trade, he was suspected of transactions with IDBs and one or two indiscreet dealers had gone so far as to whisper the ominous word fence. But Silas smiled a benevolent smile and went his way. He knew what he knew and his clients in Amsterdam were not inquisitive. Such was Silas Hickler. as He strolled round his garden in the dusk of an October evening he seemed the very type of modest, middle-class prosperity. He was dressed in the travelling suit that he wore on his little continental trips. His bag was packed and stood in readiness on the sitting-room sofa. A parcel of diamonds, purchased honestly, though without impertinent questions, at Southampton, was in the inside pocket of his waistcoat, and another more valuable parcel was stowed in a cavity in the heel of his right boot. In an hour and a half it would be time for him to set out, to catch the boat train at the junction. Meanwhile, there was nothing to do but to stroll round the fading garden and consider how he should invest the proceeds of the impending deal. His housekeeper had gone over to Wellham for the week's shopping, and would probably not be back until eleven o'clock. He was alone in the premises, just a trifle dull. He was about to turn into the house when his ear caught the sound of footsteps on the unmade road that passed the end of the garden. He paused and listened. There was no other dwelling near, and the road led nowhere, fading away into the wasteland beyond the house. Could this be a visitor? It seemed unlikely, for visitors were few at Silas Hickler's house. Meanwhile the footsteps continued to approach, ringing out with increasing loudness on the hard, stony path. Silas strolled down to the gate, and leaning on it, looked out with some curiosity. Presently a glow of light showed him the face of a man, apparently lighting his pipe, then a dim figure detached itself from the enveloping gloom, advanced towards him, and halted opposite the garden. The stranger removed a cigarette from his mouth, and blowing out a cloud of smoke, asked, Could you tell me if this road would take me to Badsham Junction? No, replied Hitler, but there is a footpath farther on that leads to the station. Footpath? growled the stranger. I have had enough of footpaths. "'I came down from town to Catley, intending to walk across to the junction. I started along the road, and then some fool directed me to a shortcut, with the result that I have been blundering about in the dark for the last half-hour. My sight isn't very good, you know,' he added. "'What train do you want to catch?' asked Hitler. "'758,' was the reply. "'I am going to catch that train myself,' said Silas, "'but I shan't be starting for another hour. The station is only three-quarters of a mile from here.' "'If you like to come in and take a rest, we can walk down together, "'and then you'll be sure of not missing your way.' "'It's very good of you,' said the stranger, "'peering with spectacled eyes at the dark house. "'But... I think... "'Might as well wait here, as at the station,' "'said Silas in his genial way, holding the gate open, "'and the stranger, after momentary hesitation, "'entered and, flinging away his cigarette, "'followed him to the door of the cottage. "'The sitting-room was in darkness, "'save for the dull glow of the expiring fire.' But, entering before his guest, Silas applied a match to the lamp that hung from the ceiling. As the flame leaped up, flooding the little interior with light, the two men regarded one another with mutual curiosity. Brodsky, by Jingo, was Hickler's silent commentary as he looked at his guest. Doesn't know me, evidently. Wouldn't, of course, after all these years, and with his bad eyesight. Take a seat, sir, he added aloud. Will you join me in a little refreshment to while away the tide? Brodsky murmured an indistinct acceptance, and as his host turned to open a cupboard, he deposited his hat, a hard grey felt, on a chair in a corner, placed his bag on the edge of the table, resting his umbrella against it, and sat down in a small armchair. Have a biscuit, said Hickler, as he placed a whisky bottle on the table, together with a couple of his best star-pattern tumblers and a siphon. Thanks, I think I will, said Brodsky. The railway journey and all this confounded tramping about, you know. Yes, agreed Silas. Doesn't do to start with an empty stomach. Hope you don't mind oatcakes. I see they're the only biscuits I have. Brodsky hastened to assure him that oatcakes were his special and peculiar fancy, and in confirmation having mixed himself a stiff jorum, he fell to upon the biscuits with evident gusto. Brodsky was a deliberate feeder, and at present appeared to be somewhat sharp-set. His measured munching being unfavourable to conversation, most of the talking fell to Silas, and for once that genial transgressor found the task embarrassing. The natural thing would have been to discuss his guest's destination, and perhaps the object of his journey, but this was precisely what Hitler avoided doing, for he knew both, and instinct told him to keep his knowledge to himself. Brodsky was a diamond merchant of considerable reputation, and in a large way of business. He bought stones principally in the rough, and of these he was a most excellent judge. His fancy was for stones of somewhat unusual size and value, and it was well known to be his custom, when he had accumulated a sufficient stock, to carry them himself to Amsterdam and supervise the cutting of the rough stones. This Hickler was aware, and he had no doubt that Brodsky was now starting on one of his periodical excursions, that somewhere in the recesses of his rather shabby clothing was concealed a paper packet, possibly worth several thousand pounds. Brodsky sat by the table, munching monotonously and talking little. Hickler sat opposite him, talking nervously and rather wildly at times, and watching his guest with a growing fascination. Precious stones, and especially diamonds, were Hickler's specialty. Hard stuff, silver plate, he avoided entirely. Gold, excepting at the form of specie, he seldom touched. But stones of which he could carry off a whole consignment in the heel of his boot, and dispose of with absolute safety, formed the staple of his industry. And here was a man sitting opposite him, with a parcel in his pocket, containing the equivalent of a dozen of his most successful scoops, stones worth, perhaps. He pulled up short and began to talk rapidly, though without much coherence, for even as he talked, Other words, formed subconsciously, seemed to insinuate themselves into the interstices of the sentences and to carry on a parallel train of thought. Gets chilly in the evenings now, doesn't it? said Hickler. It does indeed, Brodsky agreed, and then resumed his slow munching, breathing audibly through his nose. Five thousand at least, the subconscious train of thought resumed. Probably six, seven, perhaps ten, Siles fidgeted in his chair and endeavoured to concentrate his ideas on some topic of interest. He was growing disagreeably conscious of a new and unfamiliar state of mind. Do you take any interest in gardening? he asked. Next to diamonds and weekly property, his besetting weakness was fuchsias. Borski chuckled sourly. and garden is the nearest approach, he broke off suddenly and then added. I am a Londoner, you know. The abrupt break in the sentence was not unnoticed by Silas, nor had he any difficulty in interpreting it. A man who carries untold wealth upon his person must needs be wary in his speech. Yes, he answered absently. It's hardly a Londoner's hobby. And then half-consciously he began a rapid calculation. Put it at five thousand pounds. What would that represent in weekly property? His last set of houses had cost two hundred and fifty pounds apiece, and he had let them at ten shillings and sixpence a week. At that rate, five thousand pounds represented twenty houses at ten and sixpence a week, say ten pounds a week. One pound eight shillings a day, five hundred and twenty pounds a year, for life. It was a competency. Added to what he already had, it was wealth. With that income, he could fling the tools of his trade into the river and live out the remainder of his life in comfort and security. He glanced furtively at his guest across the table and looked away quickly as he felt stirring within him an impulse, the nature of which he could not mistake. This must be put an end to. Crimes against the person he had always looked upon as sheer insanity. There was, it is true, the little affair of the Weybridge policeman, but that was unforeseen and unavoidable, and it was the constable's doing after all. And there was the old housekeeper at Epsom, too, but of course, if the old idiot would shriek in that insane fashion, well, it was an accident, very regrettable, to be sure, no one could be more sorry for the mishap than himself but deliberate homicide, robbery from the person. It was the act of a stark lunatic. Of course, if he had happened to be that sort of person, here was the opportunity of a lifetime, the immense booty, the empty house, the solitary neighbourhood, away from the main road and from other habitations, the time, the darkness. But of course, there was the body to be thought of. That was always the difficulty. What to do with the body? Here he caught the shriek of the Up Express, "'rounding the curve and the line that ran past the wasteland at the back of the house. "'The sound started a new train of thought, and as he followed it out, "'his eyes fixed themselves on the unconscious and taciturn Brodsky, "'as he sat thoughtfully sipping his whisky. "'At length, averting his gaze with an effort, he rose suddenly from his chair "'and turned to look at the clock on the mantelpiece, "'spreading out his hands before the dying fire.' A tumult of strange sensations warned him to leave the house. He shivered slightly, though he was rather hot than chilly, and turned his head, looking at the door. Seems to be a confounded draught, he said with another slight shiver. Did I shut the door properly, I wonder? He strode across the room and, opening the door wide, looked out into the dark garden. Desire, sudden and urgent, had come over him to get out into the open air, to be on the road and have done with this madness that was knocking at the door of his brain. I wonder if it is worth while to start yet, he said, with a yearning glance at the murky, starless sky. Brodsky roused himself and looked round. Is your clock right? he asked. Silas reluctantly admitted that it was. How long will it take us to walk to the station? inquired Brodsky. Oh, about twenty-five minutes to half an hour, replied Silas, unconsciously exaggerating the distance. Well, said Brodsky. "'We've got more than an hour yet, "'and it's more comfortable here "'than hanging about the station. "'I don't see the use of starting before we need.' "'No, of course not,' Cyrus agreed. "'A wave of strange emotion, "'half regretful, half triumphant, "'surged through his brain. "'For some moments he remained standing on the threshold, "'looking out dreamily into the night. "'Then he softly closed the door, "'and seemingly without the exercise of his volition, "'the key turned noiselessly in the lock. "'He returned to his chair, tried to open a conversation with the taciturn Brodsky, but the words came faltering and disjointed. He felt his face growing hot, his brain full and intense, and there was a faint high-pitched singing in his ears. He was conscious of watching his guest with a new and fearful interest, and by sheer force of will turned away his eyes and to find them a moment later involuntarily returning to fix the unconscious man with yet more horrible intensity and ever through his mind walked like a dreadful procession the thoughts of what that other man, the man of blood and violence, would do in these circumstances. Detail by detail the hideous synthesis fitted together the parts of the imagined crime, and arranged them in due sequence until they formed a succession of events rational, connected, and coherent. He rose uneasily from his chair, with his eyes still riveted upon his guest, He could not sit any longer opposite the man with his hidden store of precious gems. The impulse that he recognized with fear and wonder was growing more ungovernable from moment to moment. If he stayed, it would presently overpower him. And then he shrank with horror from the dreadful thought, but his fingers itched to handle the diamonds. For Silas was, after all, a criminal by nature and habit. He was a beast of prey. His livelihood had never been earned. It had been taken by stealth, or, if necessary, by force. His instincts were predacious, and the proximity of unguarded valuables suggested to him, as a logical consequence, their abstraction or seizure. His unwillingness to let these diamonds go away beyond his reach was fast becoming overwhelming. But he would make one more effort to escape. He would keep out of Brodsky's actual presence until the moment the starting came. "'If you'll excuse me,' he said, "'I will go and put on a thicker pair of boots. "'After all this dry weather, we may get a change, "'and damp feet are very uncomfortable when you are travelling. "'Yes, dangerous too,' agreed Brodsky. Silas walked through into the adjoining kitchen, "'where, by the light of the little lamp that was burning there, "'he had seen his stout country boots placed, cleaned and in readiness, "'and sat down upon a chair to make the change. "'He did not, of course, intend to wear the country boots.' for the diamonds were concealed in those he had on. But he would make the change, and then alter his mind. It would all help to pass the time. He took a deep breath. It was a relief at any rate to be out of that room. Perhaps if he stayed away, the temptation would pass. Brodsky would go on his way. He wished that he was going alone, and the danger would be over, at least, and the opportunity would have gone. The diamonds. He looked up as he slowly unlaced his boot. From where he sat, he could see Brodsky sitting by the table, with his back towards the kitchen door. He had finished eating now and was composedly rolling a cigarette. Silas breathed heavily and, slipping off his boot, sat for a while motionless, gazing steadily at the other man's back. Then he unlaced the other boot, still staring abstractedly at his unconscious guest, drew it off and laid it very quietly on the floor. Brodsky calmly finished rolling his cigarette, licked the paper, put away his pouch and having dusted the crumbs of tobacco from his knees, began to search his pockets for a match. Suddenly, yielding to an uncontrollable impulse, Silas stood up and began stealthily to creep along the passage to the sitting-room. Not a sound came from his stockinged feet. Silently, as a cat, he stole forward, breathing softly with parted lips, until he stood at the threshold of the room. His face flushed duskily, his eyes wide and staring, glittered in the lamplight and the racing blood hummed in his ears. Brodsky struck a match. Silas noted that it was a wooden vesta, lighted his cigarette, blew out the match and flung it into the fender. Then he replaced the box in his pocket and commenced to smoke. Slowly and without a sound, Silas crept forward into the room, step by step, with cat-like stealthiness, until he stood close behind Brodsky's chair, so close that he had to turn his head that his breath might not stir the hair upon the other man's head. So for half a minute he stood motionless, like a symbolical statue of murder, glaring down with horrible glittering eyes upon the unconscious diamond merchant, while his quick breath passed without a sound through his open mouth, and his fingers writhed slowly like the tentacles of a giant hydra. And then, as noiselessly as ever, he backed away to the door, turned quickly and walked back into the kitchen. He drew a deep breath. It had been a near thing. Brodsky's life had hung upon a thread for it had been so easy. Indeed, if he had happened, as he stood behind the man's chair, to have a weapon. A hammer, for instance, or even a stone He glanced round the kitchen, and his eyes lighted on a bar that had been left by the workman who had put up the new greenhouse. It was an odd piece, cut off from a square, wrought iron stanchion, and was about a foot long and perhaps three quarters of an inch thick. Now, if he had had that in his hand a minute ago. He picked the bar up, balanced it in his hand and swung it round his head. A formidable weapon, this. Silent, too. And it fitted the plan that had passed through his brain. Bah, better put the thing down. But he did not. He stepped over to the door and looked again at Brodsky, sitting as before, meditatively smoking with his back towards the kitchen. Suddenly a change came over Silas. His face flushed, the veins of his neck stood out and a sullen scowl settled on his face. He drew out his watch, glanced at it earnestly and replaced it. Then he strode swiftly but silently along the passage into the sitting room. A pace away from his victim's chair, he halted and took deliberate aim. The bar swung aloft, but not without some faint rustle of movement, for Brodsky looked round quickly, even as the iron whistled through the air. The movement disturbed the murderer's aim, and the bar glanced off his victim's head, making only a trifling wound. Brodsky sprang up with a tremulous, bleating cry and clutched his assailant's arms with the tenacity of mortal terror. Then began a terrible struggle, as the two men, locked in a deadly embrace, swayed to and fro and trampled backwards and forwards. The chair was overturned, an empty glass swept from the table, and with Brodsky's spectacles crushed beneath stamping feet, and thrice that dreadful, pitiful, bleating, cry rang out into the night, filling Silas, despite his murderous frenzy, with terror lest some chance wayfarer should hear it. Gathering his great strength for a final effort, he forced his victim backwards onto the table, and snatching up a corner of the tablecloth, thrust it into his face and crammed it into his mouth as it opened to utter another shriek. And thus he remained for full two minutes, almost motionless, like some dreadful group of tragic allegory. Then, when the last faint twitchings had died away, Silas relaxed his grip and let the limp body slip softly onto the floor. It was over. For good or for evil? the thing was done. Silas stood up, breathing heavily, and as he wiped the sweat from his face, he looked at the clock. The hands stood at one minute to seven. The whole thing had taken a little over three minutes. He had nearly an hour in which to finish his task. The goods train that entered into his scheme came by at twenty minutes past, and it was only three hundred yards to the line. Still, he must not waste time, he was now quite composed and only disturbed by the thought that Brodsky's cries might have been heard. If no one had heard them, it was all plain sailing. He stooped, and gently disengaging the tablecloth from the man's teeth, began a careful search of his pockets. He was not long finding what he sought, and as he pinched the paper packet and felt the little hard bodies grating on one another, his faint regrets for what had happened were swallowed up in self-congratulations. He now set about his task with business-like briskness and an attentive eye on the clock. A few large drops of blood had fallen on the tablecloth, and there was a small bloody smear on the carpet by the dead man's head. Silas fetched from the kitchen some water, a nail brush and a dry cloth, and having washed out the stains from the table cover, not forgetting the deal tabletop underneath, and cleaned away the smear from the carpet, and rubbed the damp places dry, he slipped a sheet of paper under the head of the corpse to prevent further contamination. Then he set the tablecloth straight, stood to the chair upright, laid the broken spectacles on the table and picked up the cigarette which had been trodden flat in the struggle and flung it under the grate then there was the broken glass which he swept up into a dustpan part of it was the remains of the shattered tumbler and the rest the fragments of the broken spectacles he turned it out into a sheet of paper looked it over carefully picking out the larger recognizable pieces of the spectacled glasses and putting them aside on a separate slip of paper together with a sprinkling of the minute fragments The remainder he shot back into the dustpan, and having hurriedly put on his boots, carried it out to the rubbish heap at the back of the house. It was now time to start, hastily cutting off a length of string from his string box, for Silas was an orderly man, and despised the oddments of string with which many people make shift. He tied it to the dead man's bag and umbrella, and slung them from his shoulder. Then he folded up the paper of broken glass, and, slipping it and the spectacles into his pocket, picked up the body and threw it over his shoulder. Brodsky was a small spare man, weighing not more than nine stone, not a very formidable burden for a big, athletic man like Silas. The night was intensely dark, and when Silas looked out of the back gate over the wasteland that stretched from his house to the railway, he could hardly see twenty yards ahead. After listening cautiously and hearing no sound, he went out, shut the gate softly behind him, and set forth at a good pace, though carefully, over the broken ground. His progress was not as silent as he could have wished for, though the scanty turf that covered the gravelly land was thick enough to deaden his footfalls. The swinging bag and umbrella made an irritating noise. Indeed, his movements were more hampered by them than by the weightier burden. The distance to the line was about three hundred yards. Ordinarily he would have walked it in from three to four minutes, but now, going cautiously with his burden and stopping now and again to listen, it took him just six minutes to reach the three-bar fence that separated the wasteland from the railway. Arrived here, he halted for a moment, and once more listened attentively, peering into the darkness on all sides. Not a living creature was to be seen or heard in this desolate spot, but far away the shriek of an engine's whistle warned him to hasten. Lifting the corpse easily over the fence, he carried it a few yards farther to a point where the line curved sharply. Here he laid it face downwards with the neck over the near rail. Drawing out his pocket knife, he cut through the knot that fastened the umbrella to the string and also secured the bag and when he had flung the bag and umbrella on the track beside the body, he carefully pocketed the string excepting the little loop that had fallen to the ground when the knot was cut. The quick snort and clanking rumble of an approaching goods train began now to be clearly audible. Rapidly, Silas drew from his pockets the battered spectacles and the packet of broken glass. The former he threw down by the dead man's head, and then, emptying the packet into his hand, sprinkled the fragments of glass around the spectacles. He was none too soon. Already the quick-laboured puffing of the engine sounded close at hand. His impulse was to stay and watch, to witness the final catastrophe that should convert the murder into an accident or suicide, but it was hardly safe. It would be better that he should not be near, lest he should not be able to get away without being seen. Hastily he climbed back over the fence and strode away across the rough fields while the train came snorting and clattering towards the curve. He had nearly reached his back gate, when a sound from the line brought him to a sudden halt. It was a prolonged whistle, accompanied by the groan of brakes and the loud clank of colliding trucks. The snorting of the engine had ceased, and was replaced by the penetrating hiss of escaping steam. The train had stopped. For one brief moment Silas stood with bated breath, and mouth agape like one petrified. Then he strode forward quickly to the gate, and letting himself in, silently slid the bolt. He was undeniably alarmed. What could have happened on the line? It was practically certain that the body had been seen. But what was happening now? And would they come to the house? He entered the kitchen, and having paused again to listen, for somebody might come and knock at the door at any moment, he walked through the sitting room and looked round. All seemed in order there. There was the bar, though, lying where he had dropped it in the scuffle. He picked it up and held it under the lamp. There was no blood on it, only one or two hairs. Somewhat absently, he wiped it with a table cover and then running out through the kitchen into the back garden, dropped it over the wall into a bed of nettles. Not that there was anything incriminating in the bar, but since he had used it as a weapon, it had somehow acquired a sinister aspect to his eye. He now felt that it would be well to start for the station at once. It was not time yet, for it was barely twenty-five minutes past seven, but he did not wish to be found in the house if anyone should come. His soft hat was on the sofa with his bag, to which his umbrella was strapped. He put on the hat, caught up the bag and stepped over to the door. Then he came back to turn down the lamp. And it was at this moment, when he stood with his hand raised to the burner, that his eyes, travelling by chance into the dim corner of the room, lighted on Brodsky's grey felt hat, posing on the chair where the dead man had placed it when he entered the house. Silas stood for a few moments as if petrified, with the chilly sweat of mortal fear standing in beads upon his forehead. Another instant, and he would have turned the lamp down and gone on his way. And then he strode over to the chair, snatched up the hat, and looked inside it. Yes, there was the name. Oscar Brodsky, written plainly on the lining. If he had gone away, leaving it to be discovered, he would have been lost. Indeed, even now, if a search party should come to the house, it was enough to send him to the gallows. His limbs shook with horror at the thought, but in spite of his panic, he did not lose his self-possession. Darting through into the kitchen, he grabbed up a handful of the dry brushwood that was kept for lighting fires, and carried it to the sitting-room grate, where he thrust it on the extinct but still hot embers, and crumpling up the paper that he had placed under Brodsky's head, on which paper he now noticed, for the first time, a minute bloody smear. He poked it in under the wood, and striking a wax match, set light to it. As the wood flared up, he hacked at the hat with his pocket-knife, and threw the ragged strips into the blaze and all the while his heart was thumping, and his hands a trembled with the dread of discovery. The fragments of felt were far from inflammable, tending rather to fuse into cindery masses that smoked and smouldered than to burn away into actual ash. Moreover, to his dismay, they emitted a powerful, resinous stench mixed with the odour of burning hair, so that he had to open the kitchen window since he dared not unlock the front door to disperse the reek, and still as he fed the fire with small cut fragments, he strained his ears to catch, above the crackling of the wood, the sound of the dreaded footsteps, the knock on the door, that should be as the summons of fate. The time, too, was speeding on, twenty-one minutes to eight, and a few minutes more he must set out or he would miss the train. He dropped the dismembered hat-brim on the blazing wood, and ran upstairs to open a window, since he must close that in the kitchen before he left. When he came back, The brim had already curled up into a black, clinkery mass that bubbled and hissed as the fat, pungent smoke rose from it sluggishly to the chimney. Nineteen minutes to eight. It was time to start. He took up the poker and carefully beat the cinders into small particles, stirring them into the glowing embers of the wood and coal. There was nothing unusual in the appearance of the grate. It was his constant custom to burn letters and other discarded articles in the sitting-room fire. His housekeeper would notice nothing out of the common. Indeed, the cinders would probably be reduced to ashes before she returned. He had been careful to notice that there was no metallic fittings of any kind in the hat which might have escaped burning. Once more he picked up his bag, took a last look round, turned down the lamp and, unlocking the door, held it open for a few moments. Then he went out, locked the door, pocketed the key, of which his housekeeper had a duplicate, and set off at a brisk pace for the station. He arrived in good time after all, and having taken his ticket, strolled through onto the platform. The train was not yet signalled, but there seemed to be an unusual stir in the place. The passengers were collected in a group at one end of the platform, and were all looking in one direction down the line, and even as he walked towards them with a certain tremulous, nauseating curiosity, two men emerged from the darkness and ascended the slope to the platform, carrying a stretcher covered with a tarpaulin. The passengers parted to let the bearers pass, turning fascinated eyes upon the shape that showed faintly through the rough pall. And when the stretcher had been borne into the lamp room, they fixed their attention upon a porter who followed, carrying a handbag and an umbrella. Suddenly, one of the passengers started forward with an exclamation, "Is that his umbrella?" He demanded. "Yes, sir," answered the porter, stopping and holding out for the speaker's inspection. "My God!" ejaculated the passenger. Then turning sharply to a tall man who stood close by, he said excitedly, "That's Brodsky's umbrella! I could swear it!" You remember Brodsky? The tall man nodded, and the passenger, turning once more to the porter, said, "I identify that umbrella. It belongs to a gentleman named Brodsky. If you look in his hat, you will see his name written in it. He always writes his name in his hat." "We haven't found his hat yet," said the porter, "but here is the station master coming up the line." He awaited the arrival of his superior, and then announced, "'This gentleman, sir, has identified the umbrella.' "'Oh,' said the station-master, "'you recognise the umbrella, do you? "'Then perhaps you would step into the lamp-room "'and see if we can identify the body.' "'Is he—is he—very much injured?' "'the passenger asked tremulously. "'Well, yes,' was the reply. "'You see, the engine and six of the trucks "'went over him before they could stop the train. "'Took his head clean off, in fact.' "'Shocking! Shocking!' gasped the passenger. "'I think—' If you don't mind, I'd, I'd rather not. You don't think it necessary, Doctor, do you? Yes, I do, replied the tall man. Early identification may be of the first importance. Then I suppose I must, said the passenger. Very reluctantly, he allowed himself to be conducted by the station master to the lamp room as the clang of the bell announced the approaching train. Silas Hickler followed and took his stand with the expectant crowd outside the closed door. In a few moments, the passenger burst out. "'pale and awe-stricken, and rushed up to his tall friend. "'It is!' he exclaimed breathlessly. "'It's Brodsky! Poor old Brodsky! "'Horrible! Horrible! "'He was to have met me here and come with me to Amsterdam!' "'Had he any uh, merchandise about him?' the tall man asked, "'and Silas strained his ears to catch the reply. "'He had some stones, no doubt, but I don't know what. "'His clerk will know, of course. "'By the way, Doctor, could you watch the case for me?' Just to be sure it was really an accidental. you know what, we are old friends, you know, fellow townsmen, too, we were both born in Warsaw, I'd like you to give an eye to the case. Very well, said the other, I will satisfy myself, there is nothing more than appears, unless you have a report, will that do? Thank you, it's excessively good of you, doctor, ah, here comes the train, I hope it won't inconvenience you to stay and see to this matter, not in the least. Replied the doctor. We were not due at Warmington until tomorrow afternoon, and I expect we can find out all that is necessary to know before that. Silas looked long and curiously at the tall, imposing man who was, as it were, taking his seat at the chessboard to play against him for his life. A formidable antagonist he looked, with his keen, thoughtful face so resolute and calm. As Silas stepped into his carriage, he thought with deep discomfort of Brodsky's hat and hoped that he had made no other oversight. End of section 1